This morning is from Matthew. Matthew 5, the first 12 verses. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciple came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Thanks, Eric. Thanks for praying for, for the Kellys. It's always hard to see people who have contributed so much to the life of the church move on. The Kellys have been trying to leave for quite a while, and so they finally made it, and uh, it's bittersweet, of course. We rejoice that they're relocating to be close to family, but it's, it's, always, it's always a loss when you see people re- redirect their pathways, but we trust that God will continue to steer and direct, and you'll Pour yourself into the life of uh, the new fellowship that you find and invest in. We pray that you find a, a good one there <clears throat> as well. Last week, if you were with us, we dealt with a very long text. I say we because Ryan Zhang was our guest speaker. I think it was the longest text we've covered. <clears throat> we went through the book of Joshua, so there were some pretty long sections, but he covered the first two chapters of First Samuel. And then this week, we get back to kind of a shorter verse as we've been looking at the Beatitudes as a whole and then taking one. We're really at the second to last. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Next week we'll look at the persecuted and then we'll continue on through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, taking one piece at a time. So we're almost at the end of the Beatitudes here and we come to verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Well, I wonder if you think of the word peace, what comes to mind? I'll just give that for that, that a thought. What, is, what does peace look like or feel like for you? It could be uh, the end of some major conflict, like a, a war perhaps. Um, maybe for you it's just quietness. Let's just be quiet for a second. Besides the hum of the speaker, it's pretty peaceful. And that may even create peace for you. Some people like falling asleep with machines that create sound like that. Maybe a, 
not just an external quietness, maybe an internal quietness is peace for you. Safety, perhaps. A clear conscience, when you are no longer feeling at odds with somebody, you're at peace. Maybe a beach. What if I say a beach is just P? Oh, there's a couple of hands. Heads nodding up and down as well. <clears throat> peace is an important concept for us, and it's an important concept all throughout the Bible. And right actually at the very beginning, we see a picture of peace in the Garden of Eden. Uh, if you're familiar with the storyline of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, when God creates everything, he says it's good. Day 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and then day 6 after he creates us in his image. And he looks at everything he's created and he says it's good, good. Everything was at peace. Everything was in right order. And man is fellowshipping with God and God has created somebody who is a, a perfect fit. Adam and Eve for one another. It's really a picture of peace. And the, the Old Testament word for that, as some of you will no doubt know, is shalom. And the biblical picture of peace is shalom. And in shalom, in that state of peace, everything is exactly as it should be. Everything is perfectly harmonious. If you look up peace in the Strong's Concordance and look for some definitions. Here's the attempt at defining it. Completeness, wholeness, health, welfare, safety, soundness, tranquility, prosperity, perfection, fullness, rest, harmony. So peace is equated here with Everything is in harmony. Everything is right. And the picture of what is right is, it's multifaceted. It's not just one dimension. The, the vision for shalom is all relationships are in right order. Your relationship with yourself, for example, if you just consider, am I internally at peace? And if shalom is reigning, you feel no shame. There's no, no, there's no guilt there's no dissatisfaction. On the, on the positive side, there's contentment. You're completely at peace with who you are. You're not struggling internally. But that goes with others, too. You're at peace with others. There's, there's not a lot of blaming going on. There's not a tension between you and somebody else where you kind of wish things were in right relationship. There's no distance at all from God. The picture of the Garden of Eden, of course, is Adam and Eve walking in fellowship with God. There's no reason to hide from him or pretend to be something different. There's a wholeness, a harmony there. And there's even shalom or peace with creation itself. Uh, there's no need for, uh, for roundup. Um, you know, somebody came over to our house yesterday to pick something up, and they started picking the weeds out of our, our garden bed. And I said, come on over more often. I mean, the thing is, she, she only got about one, you know, one one-hundredth of all the weeds. And then, you know, the frustrating thing about weeds is they show up again. Over and over. Isn't that frustrating? And even if you have to pay somebody to do it, there's an income expense associated with it. I mean, there's... There's just no peace like that. And the Bible's picture of peace is a holistic vision that goes beyond the individual, as you see, to the family, to the neighborhood, to the state, to the nation, and beyond. 
Uh, Pastor Mark Gornick gives a picture, imagines what shalom would look like in a neighborhood. And he is a pastor who planted a church in Sandtown. And some of you may recognize that as a community in Baltimore where there were a handful of riots some time ago. He was a pastor right in the midst of that. And he said, this is what I picture maybe Shalom looking like. What, what difference does he, he says, what differences would Shalom make? Nourished by the guiding image of Shalom, not the logic of the market. In a neighborhood where God's peace runs like a deep current, weary families would find new strength and joy. Every gift would be appreciated and called into service. Those able to work would have employment that both served the common good and provided a living wage. Miserable housing would be a thing of the past, replaced by homes offering beauty and safety. Vacant land would be turned into gardens filled with flowers and vegetables, reclaimed for local economic development or designated for local economic development or designated for affordable housing. Children would attend schools that nurtured the whole person, mind and spirit, enabling them to navigate the world successfully. Streets would be safe, and the innocent would not fear those who protect. No more would the emergency room be a doctor's office, for quality health services would be personal and available when needed. An atmosphere of neighborly commitment would reinforce bonds of trust, and by virtue of all these things being signs of shalom, at the center of this experience would be the acknowledgement of God as the giver of this gift, the one in whose service human beings are called to live responsibly. This is how the neighborhoods of the city should work. And that's a vision that I think would excite anyone who actually has a pulse here this morning. Doesn't that sound nice? for the city of Cincinnati, or even for the suburbs. And you know, when we live in a place, maybe in the Mason area or the surrounding region, a lot of the vision here is true, probably for us. Not, not perfect, but a lot of it is true. Josh Rotano, who pastors New, New City, uh, one of our sister churches, always had a phrase that I thought was interesting, that counseling is the soup kitchen for the middle class. I mean, we don't have maybe the material needs that others do, and, but we're emotionally bankrupt. And there's a lot of conflict and a lack of peace. Oh, a great image. You can't go up to, you know, somebody's house in Mason, generally knock on it and say, could I give you some Campbell's soup? Some people might take it, but they could be a little offended by it. We don't have that need. Look at us. But they need it for their soul. We're all broken. It's just a matter of, can you hide it? Or is it obvious for others? And for those who are materially poor, materially poor you, just, you can't hide it quite as well. It's a great image, though, isn't it, of, of peace, of shalom? Don't you long for something like that? I know I do. In, in, a, in a world of brokenness, on whatever level, there are times when my soul just screams out for, for it all to end and to be at peace. Unfortunately, my definition of peace is lack of conflict. And that is one aspect of shalom, but it's not the whole. Because even if I seem to be at peace and there's no conflict, although there always is, it's just nice to shove it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist or hope it goes away. Somebody else isn't at peace. 
There, there are people either in my neighborhood or community who behind the closed doors are hurting. Or there's refugees who are fleeing a country because of persecution for one reason or another. I mean, there's a thousand storylines, even if my own little world is at peace, where there's an absence of it. Why? Well, you're all biblical scholars. You know the answer to this. Why do we lack peace? What is wrong with the world? And, you know, the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, gives a a certain picture. And then we go on to chapter 3, and we find that there's something that is wrong with the world. And it's sin, fallenness. Alex, I don't know why this isn't advancing anymore. See, sin. (laughs) Lack of technological perfection. It's still, there we go. Why do we lack peace? Because things don't work the way they should. I mean, it's true. We make mistakes uh, all the time. Maybe you're distracted when you're driving and just one, one thing wrong. We, we make mistakes, and really that's a product of a broken world. The biblical narrative is very clear about this. Everything was in harmony and shalom, and then sin entered the world, and the effects of that cannot be overstated. Every single level of our experience in the world is broken. The lack of shalom actually is the greatest barrier in pursuing it because we don't have it. And that gets very personal because the source of conflict ultimately, the lack of shalom, which prevents us from the vision of peace, even in the Garden of Eden or something like a good city like this, is a resident within. It's our very own hearts. That's what Jesus is going to be enforcing again and again in the Sermon on the Mount. The problem starts with you. It doesn't end there. It's not like we're only individualistic, but it it does start at that point. The heart is always guiding and directing our behavior. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. So we shouldn't be surprised, and the Bible tells us that this is a source of non-peace. You know, there's other places that talk about this in James 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. James says the problem's right there. Your desires are not aligning properly. You're you're not... You've got an internal issue that says, my rights, and once someone has stepped over in them, you're going to respond in a way that's coveting or perhaps even in dire circumstances killing. But James tells us there's a different path. He's already said this earlier in James 3.18, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace. And so we're, we're seeing that not only has James given us a vision for a different pathway, but Jesus has too. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And who leads the way in the peacemaking? Well, there's a step before we can become peacemakers. We have to know the peace of the one who's given us the capacity even to do that. The great peacemaker is God himself in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Shalom is a good way to describe God's putting back together a broken world. And the message of the Bible is that sin upsets 
all of these relationships with such gravity. It's so deep. They can only be put right by a perfect man of peace. It's the only hope. The, the ultimate peacemaker in whom there's no deceit, somebody without sin, someone who is himself the very essence of shalom, someone who is the son of God, someone who, although he has done nothing to deserve it, would be treated as an offense to God, an enemy, a betrayer, hostile, the personification of sin. In order that we who are peace breakers habitually and cannot bring the shalom on our own would not have to pay the great penalty for our sin. And that's what happened on the cross. I mean, Paul puts it this way, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, which is his way of saying that you trust in the work that Christ has done, you're right with God, you no longer are an enemy. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the great barrier initially to being a peacemaker is you're at odds with God. And the only way that you can become right with him is through something somebody else has done. And Christ has done that. You can have peace with God. And perhaps in some, some cultures, this, this resonates more than others. I've been able to travel around and I know that in some cultures, there are people who just don't believe they can be at peace with God without sacrificing something over and over and over again or doing enough good works that you finally measure up and then he says you're at peace but the gospel says none of that is true I have done it already there is nothing you can add to it if you want to be at peace with God you have to trust in the work of my son period but of course the story isn't over yet then out of that you become a peacemaker if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? While you were enemies, you were reconciled. Not when you got good enough. Not when you finally resolved all those conflicts and then God said, oh, okay, come on in. He leads. But of course we follow. Our life group, I'm part of two life groups, and I'm cheating a little bit because we're going through the text in advance, and it, it forces me to think a little bit, but also get other people's perspectives on the text that we're covering, and we were talking about this, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, and Bill made the comment, I think relevant to what I just said, that he said, I'm not a peacemaker apart from the spirit, I am blessed, and because of that, I'm a peacemaker, in other words, you know, I can't do this on my own, but because I am blessed, I can be a peacemaker. God himself has led the way by making peace with us. So if, in fact, you've experienced such peace with God, you're called to reflect his character and be a peacemaker. You look like your father. In fact, you might even be called a son or a daughter of God when you're actually making peace. When there's a conflict or one of these relationships is broken and you are actively stepping toward it in a peacemaking sort of way, you look like a child of God. If you were to see my father, some of you have met him here today, we stood side by side, you'd see some similarities. 
I never quite got to be as tall as he was. In my mind, I would have been an absolute basketball phenomenon, <laughs> just a few inches away from awesomeness. Instead, mediocrity for most of my life. But it was always a nice excuse, I suppose. But, you know, there are some features that we have in common, and we stand next to each other. And perhaps even with my mother, too, you can see certain features. And when you look at me and you see my parents, you say, well, he looks like them. And that's because I came from them. I know not everybody has the luxury of knowing maybe what biological parents look like, but in my case, you would say he looks like them because I bear their res resemblance. And Jesus is saying the same thing here. When you are a peacemaker, you look like a son of God or a daughter of God. It's, it's no wonder because in the process of peacemaking, sometimes there's a cost associated with doing that as we step forward to it. But you look like the Son of God. Not ontologically, there's only one in essence, but you bear the resemblance of being a child of God when you become a peacemaker. One of the main works Jesus came to do is to make peace between parties who were not reconciled, us and God and us and each other as well. So followers of Jesus will be people of peace. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And part of that ministry is to tell people to be reconciled to God. You can see how foolish it would be for people to say, hey, be at peace with God, and at the same time, be people who don't strive to make peace with others. It doesn't fit. So, just for a few minutes, let's consider, if you have some inspiration to be a peacemaker, how do you do that? And the thing is, we can't answer every single question here, so we'll be a little bit selective. But here are some ideas. If you say, okay... I'd like somebody to say, wow, you look, I don't know if you've ever had somebody say to you, you look like a son of God, but you're definitely reflective of that reality when you're peacemaking. So here are some ideas. How do you become a peacemaker? One, one thing you can do is to learn to turn conflict into opportunity. Look, there's going to be conflict, okay? It, it just exists because we live in a broken world. I wish there wasn't because, like I've said, my definition of peace is no conflict. I love it if there was no conflict. I, I don't like conflict. There, is there anybody here who likes conflict? <laughs> Nobody's willing to admit it? I mean, there have to be some people probably who, who actually like it, but nobody here, so we, we don't like it. So we will tend to do something with it probably unhealthy, but when it arises, we can look at it as an opportunity for our own growth, for the growth of somebody else, and really an opportunity to demonstrate grace. And that takes a unique mentality and really a different response. Uh, Ken Sands written a book, and I lean heavily on him, called Peacemaker. Uh, maybe you've seen it before. He says this, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ. And then they bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and use them to dissipate anger, improve understanding, promote justice, and encourage repentance and reconciliation. The conflicts of daily life can be more than just an inconvenience. 
They can become stories of grace, right? We tell stories of grace once a month of God's work in, through, and around us. Wouldn't it be different, maybe even this week, just as one takeaway to say, Lord, when you have a conflict arise, help me to see this as an opportunity to respond in grace. So learning to turn conflict into opportunity, and we'll give you some ideas about what that looks like. But another way to start becoming a peacemaker is just to identify your own responses in conflict. You know, Socrates, that's a nod to Bill and Ted's excellent adventure back in the day, said, know thyself, right? He was on to something. Um, even Calvin talks about if you're going to really understand who, you know, this world and everything, the two, two pathways to wisdom are know yourself and know God, And you have to kind of know who you are and how you're designed as you enter into maybe being a peacemaker. There are several responses in conflict. For example, escape is one. That's known as peace faking. Blessed are the peace fakers. Right? That's that's what I'm really good at. I'm a super great peace faker. And you escape or or deny it. And and then the, the extreme sense... It could be suicide. You just want to escape. You can't deal with the, with the conflict internally or externally any longer. Or you flee in some way. Flight. It, it could be burying your head in the sand, just hoping the person with conflict goes away eventually for one reason or another, or just over time it, it disappears. And you deny it. You deny that it really exists. That looks like peace, kind of, but it's, it's, it's fake. But maybe you're the kind of person who, when there's a conflict, you don't do the peace faking, you do the peace breaking. You attack. You know, some people escape, others, it's gloves off, baby. You're coming at me with fire, you're going to get lasers or something. And, you know, you get, you're just lopping off body parts left and right. So assault, litigation, I'm going to sue you. And it can lead, obviously, in the extreme case, to murder. I mean, this is is peace breaking. Who are you? A faker or a breaker? Well, we want a peacemaker, right? And so that's kind of the third opportunity. You might be a peacemaker. You might be the kind of person, if you're leaning into this, that is willing to overlook a certain offense. Is it really worth pursuing? Or perhaps you're leaning into reconciliation as well. I'm going to take steps toward making this right, every effort I can. And oftentimes, if you know yourself, you might not be able to do that on your own. I mean, there's an art of negotiation. When we do marriage mentoring, for example, it's really, in many ways, about negotiation. It's validating how somebody feels on both parties and then saying, how do we come together for a solution that works for both of us? And like everything else, it sounds so good on paper, but it's hard to do because you revert to faking or breaking, whatever your default mode is. So sometimes you need mediation, a third party there who's helping you move through the process. I've needed that before. We've needed that in our marriage. I've needed that in a conflict in ministry as well with a a staff member. And we just, it didn't work. 
And I, I needed a third party and some time and some help to get through that on the other end of it. Arbitration. Those are all words associated with the peacemaking process. Conflict always involves knowing who you are, but also the other person. So you need wisdom to overcome your own tendencies and be sensitive toward the other person's as well. And, you know, there's a lot that could be said about each of those. Hopefully you get the general sense of it. But steps toward this are included pretty straightforward, even in the Bible itself. I mean, you're probably familiar with Matthew 18 as a process for one of those peacemaking things, reconciliation. You're familiar with this, but let me remind you of it. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. So already you don't have escape. You're moving towards somebody. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he won't listen, take one or two others along. Right? Now you're talking about some mediation and some other people coming with you. So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two to three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. There's a process of confrontation here that the Bible has given us. And if most of us would start at the very first line, we'd never get to the other ones. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you, period. A lot of times it doesn't need to go on. When you hold on to something and and somebody has said or done something that that hurts you, boy, it's kind of nice just to cherish that sin and feed it over time and think about what's the zinger I could say to that person or in your mind something awful is happening. I mean, this isn't you, of course, describing you. This is just a scenario of somebody who doesn't really exist, what they might be thinking. And I'm grateful for the times, and it's happened over the years, and I invite you to do this kind of scarily. But if if or when I do something or say something, because it is bound to happen, that's hurtful or offensive. I, I may be completely ignorant of it, but I don't know unless you tell me. And you know, somebody who's walking with the Lord and knows that he is the firm foundation, as we sang, a person of grace can receive that kind of input and not necessarily become a faker or a breaker, but say, well, what can I do to make it right? I and mean, people I know who understand the gospel the best are some of the most approachable people in the world. It doesn't mean they're going to do everything right. It means when they make a mistake and somebody confronts them, they're able to say, I'm sorry. I don't want to do that again. How can I make it right? That's what a peacemaking process can look like. I had somebody come to me just a few weeks ago and and make mention of something that I had said in, in the context of a message that was hurtful. And I said, thanks. It hurts for me to hear. I don't want that to be the case. I'm so grateful you said that. Now, file that away and try, try to remember not to say it again. And that's something that could have become a root of bitterness that just grew and grew and grew. And all of a sudden, your heart is a jungle of jaded frustration. Well, that's the beginning process. Keep the circle as small as possible 
basically, is what's being said here. I mean, that's another thing is you start small and try to keep it small. Look, if you're a, a verbal processor like I am, you might want to go to your spouse or something else and say, I got to tell you something I'm so ticked off about, about this. Try processing with God first, even. Try that. Write it out. Talk it out. There are times when you need to process with somebody else, but keep the circle small. And keep short accounts. I mean, this is true in marriage or anything else. Just don't let it fester. You know, Paul makes that goal of not going to sleep in your anger for a reason. Because it can just build. And it gets harder. And we'll deal a little bit more with this in the Sermon on the Mount. But if you decide maybe you want to confront somebody, here's an approach to get you started. I mean, this is again from Ken Sandy. He has... Four G's. The first is glorify God. If you need to confront somebody because you want to make peace, start here. How can I please and honor God in this situation? Start there. Like there's, there's some conflict and you've got to do some work in your own heart and say, how can God be glorified? And then get the log out of your own eye. How can I show Jesus' work in me by taking responsibility for my contribution to this conflict? You know, you admit you're 1%. If you're only 1% responsible, and I'm probably not wise to say it, look, we all know you're 99% responsible, but here's my 1% just to get us started. That's, you almost treat your one like 100. I mean, you can't take responsibility for somebody else's actions, only your own. This is what I'm owning up to. It's actually, it's actually uh, quite off-putting to somebody if you confess their sin to them. And, and quite the opposite when you confess your own to them. Get the log out of your own eye. And then gently restore. Ask, how can I lovingly serve others by helping them take responsibility for their contribution to this conflict? That's hard. <laughs> You're saying, here's my responsibility, but it's not just finished there. As somebody who wants to avoid conflict, it's hard to do something like, hey, brother, here's, here's what I've seen too. And Others have done this more effectively to me, and I'm grateful for it over the years. This, this is something I see that I think you need to, need to deal with. I, re, I remember one of my um, good friends. I, I confessed something about Jill in some context, my wife. And he confronted me, and he says, don't ever confess your wife's sins to anybody else. I remember that. I don't know why I did it, either to, I don't know if it was to make her look bad or make me look good. But actually, the opposite happened. She looked like a victim, and I looked like a jerk. And that's how it should have been, probably. And then go and be reconciled. How can I demonstrate the forgiveness of God and encourage a reasonable solution to this conflict? Reconciliation is a replacement of hostility and division with peace and friendship. So if you're, I'm just trying to give you some practical measurements for if you find yourself at odds in a certain circumstance, it's not just close your eyes and go for it. Take some, some thinking, some, some contemplation, some prayer, and maybe some assistance from somebody else as well. The Bible talks a lot as well about setting a guard over your mouth. Watching what you say and how you say it. 
if there's uh, an absence of peace. I remember years ago being told uh, a story of a person who gossiped and caused a conflict and went to a wise man on the top of a, a tower and said, how can I make it better? And so he said, well, I want you to take a piece of paper here, write down the, the, what you've done to create this conflict, the things you've gossiped and what you've, how you've become a, a peace breaker. And, um, and then I want you to tear it up and throw it off the tower and let the wind take it away. So the person did that, like, shh. And they're thinking, I'm going to be released from this. And he said, well, actually, now I want you to go pick up all the pieces of paper, reassemble it, and bring it back up here to me. <laughs> and, the, and, of course, the person said, well, that's impossible. I said, so it's impossible for you to undo the damage you've done in the words that you've spoken. Complaining, falsehood, gossip, slander, coarse joking, they're all sources of conflict that can have lifelong effects. Enter social media, right? <laughs> for, uh, you know, for the older folks, it's Facebook. But for everybody who's under a certain age, it's TikTok and Snapchat and Instagram. Sometimes even fake accounts and cyberbullying. You can create conflict with your words. But you can also heal conflict with your words. I mean, the reality is it's much more difficult to build growth than it is to destroy. Now, I was talking to the Liberty Bible Academy kids just at a chapel, you know, and this is something you already know, but if I gave each of you a sledgehammer today and said, each of you pick one of these rooms, I'm going to give you five minutes. Go to any classroom you want um, and just, just start swinging. Like, destroy everything you possibly can. And let's meet back here five minutes from now. You know, some of you might have more success than others at doing that. But I'm guessing there'd be quite a bit of carnage left in the building. And, you know, Liberty Bible comes in on uh, a Monday morning. Like, what in the world happened? It's just five minutes of destruction. No big deal. I'll give you each five minutes to put it back together. Well, it's going to be no problem. I don't think that's how it would go, right? And words are very, very similar. Don't, don't you remember things that were said to you years and years and years ago that you keep recording over and over? And yet somebody comes along and says, those aren't true. You need to hear it again and again and again. It's hard. So when it comes to conflict, be cautious. You can heal conflict with your words, and you can create more conflict with your words when you're trying to resolve a conflict with your words. That's opportunities mentioned earlier listen to how your words can be peace breaking or peacemaking according to the bible here's a, a peace making peace breaking contrast proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 a gentle answer turns away wrath but a harsh word stirs up anger want to be a peacemaker try a gentle answer want to be a peacemaker say something harsh to somebody want to be a peacebreaker Proverbs 15.4, the tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Wow, you can be a tree of life, the tongue that brings healing. Proverbs 18.21, the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. What an image there. If you are a person who uses your words to give life to others, you're going to eat that fruit. It's probably coming back at you. 
And if you're venomous and poisonous with your words, that's what you're going to get also. Proverbs 12:18, reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Ephesians 4:29, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Just because it's true does not mean it's always helpful and beneficial. There's a timing uh, associated with this as well. Those are just, I mean, that's the Bible talking about peacemaking pathway just with your words. And sometimes the damage is so hard to recover. But in this process of becoming peacemakers or leaning into it at least, a final word, which is remind yourself of the gospel. A lot. This is a hard issue. It's not just a list you can check off. Be nicer. I'm thinking here especially if you're on the receiving end of a wrong that's been done to you. Somebody's crossed the line or wounded you. Remember the gospel. I mean, here, here are some examples of what that looks like. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace. This is kind of an internal family issue uh, among the children of God, those who have placed their faith in Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The image there, the Greek word is of a referee blowing a whistle. You know, Doug's a soccer coach, right? So when the referee blows a whistle, there's something that's, that's wrong and it needs to be assessed and maybe there's a free penalty kick or somebody gets a yellow card or a red card, they're kicked out, and then you move on. The image there is of, of when there's not peace ruling in your heart like that, it's like a whistle's blown off and you need to ask why. What's going on? What do I need to address? How can I become a peacemaker? Because we were called to peace. You were, blessed are the peacemakers. They'll be called the sons of God. That's like an identification, but here is what you are called to, peace. So it should trouble you when there isn't peace. And one of the ways you can bring it is bearing with each other and forgiving the grievances. It's kind of a, like we said, uh, blessed are the merciful. What have you been forgiven so much? And as you grasp that, then you become a forgiver. If Christ is ruling, you'll be keeping short accounts. And don't let this just be words, but actions. Live in peace with each other. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. It, it, it can be a kindness project. Let's launch it. The kindness project, and not just because it sounds great and it sells shirts, but because you were called to that. Part of what peace looks like is being kind to each other, not moralistically as if we can just be kind and everybody will be okay, but out of the overflow of the grace we've received. Maybe the next time you want to retreat or fight, you think of how to do something kind instead. In Romans 12, 8, which is, I think, a wonderfully helpful verse, says, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. One of the things I think that's being acknowledged there is we aren't going to be at peace with everyone. 
For, for one reason or another, you have strong convictions, somebody has strong convictions, they disagree with your convictions, you're trying to hold to them in a way that is, has integrity, there'll be conflict. There, we live in a world where things have not been fully resolved quite yet. But as far as it depends on you, live at peace. There are going to be boundaries associated with this at times too. And one of the, one of the greatest tragedies of living this side of heaven is when there hasn't been reconciliation and it can't exist anymore because a person is no longer around or they've shut things down. And you live in that tension, like we said in Psalm 27, of waiting to see. But as far as you can, have you done all that you can do? And the answer may be yes. You may have to be at peace, even with a lack of peace, this side of heaven. You can make peace. We can seek to bring shalom wherever there's a measure of brokenness in my own heart, in my family, in my community, in your school. It can be overwhelming to consider, really. And we need wisdom to discern where we can make a difference, but the answer to pursuing shalom certainly isn't complacency. I don't care anymore. Apathy. Or it's just too hard, I'm tired. Thank goodness... The Son of God, Christ, did not get complacent or apathetic going to the cross to make peace through his shed blood. And he did that so that we ourselves could be peacemakers. So there's an opportunity, I'm sure, maybe today, to become a peacemaker, or in the days ahead, no doubt. And even when we fail to do that, remember, you're forgiven. Christ is a great peacemaker. He didn't just do that once and then say, you're, you know, next time, forget it. He paid the price once for all for those who trust in him so that they, out of that overflow, could be peacemakers called sons of God. Father, we pray for...